Good morning. Great to be together this morning. I'm glad we can all come and uh, worship together. We have uh, first order of business, group participation. Everybody check your pockets. Who's missing Chevrolet car keys at the kids' point desk? Or was this a donation to the church? Was this a... <laughs> Anyone? All right. So whoever owns a Chevy and can't get home about an hour from now, they'll be at the kids' point desk. TA was going to hand deliver them, but all right. Maybe no one wants to admit it that they left their keys. Well, what'd you say? It is cool. Yeah. Who wore it better? Be nice, people. Remember, I have, well, I could let you out later if you say the wrong answer. All right. Well, good morning. It's, uh, again, great, great to be with you. Um, it is a uh, privilege, a joy, as well as humbling uh, anytime I get to, to speak to you, to bring the Word of God to you. Uh, in preparation, as I you know, jump into the Word and, and think about uh, bringing it before you, it always fills me with, uh, yeah, equal sense, happy thoughts, and equal sense, oh man, I'm going to be standing in front of a bunch of people. Uh, so I really just so appreciate uh, those uh, pastors who do this every week and do it so well, and uh, really excited and thrilled uh, to have our pastor, my pastor, your pastor, uh, back here uh, in this position next week. But as we go before the Lord today, as we open his word together, uh, our thought, our focus is being humbly unified. And so let's humbly unify ourselves before the Lord as we come to him to see what he has to say to us uh, in his word. We're going to be looking at John chapter 17, and it's a a big chunk. Um, And as we go into it, know from the beginning that uh, such a, a wonderful passage as Jesus is praying for his disciples and praying for unity, that as we go through this just on this one week pass, there are going to be some things in there that we go right on by, some wonderful treasures, some wonderful gems uh, that are in there that stick out to you and you're going to say, oh man, this is so awesome that, that this is in there. It's so wonderful that God is sparking this in my mind. Uh, that's great. Uh, But again, this is a one-week pass, and so your homework assignment this week is to spend some time in the book of John, chapter 17. Uh, Use it this week for your meditation, for your quiet time, for your devotions. And those things that spark in your mind, the things that that really jump to the forefront that God is bringing to you, uh, get together that we don't talk about here this morning, get together with someone else. And share those together. Share, you know, maybe with your spouse or you get together at family devotions or go to coffee with someone else and say, hey, this is what really came out to me in in John chapter 17. Uh, Because there are easily a year's worth of sermons just in this, this uh, this one chapter. But again, the theme is being humbly unified. And Jesus is praying for unity among his disciples, and we can draw the challenge that we need to pay attention to this too as well, and we should be unified, not only in him, unified to Christ, but unified together as a body of Christ. As we have been going on this journey, looking through the book of Romans to discover what it looks like to be a devoted disciple, we've taken some pit stops on the way to look at specific characteristics 
We've already looked at what it looks like to be mission-driven, what it looks like to be pursuing holiness, and now we're looking at the specific characteristic of being humbly unified. When I think of unity, when someone tells me you need to be unified and we need to get along and we all have to like each other, a lot of times this is where my mind goes. I have this picture in my head. Have you heard of get-along shirts? Parents, certainly you have. This is what a get-along shirt is, right? You you take two screaming kids who can't stand each other and jam them in a shirt and say, you're going to like each other, you're going to get along, and you're going to like it. When I hear sometimes... This is what comes to my mind when I hear the, the message of be unified. You need to get along. This is what I, where I go. And, and maybe that makes me weird. Maybe that just makes me honest. I don't know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but, but is this unity? Is unity a call to just jam ourselves together and sort of grit our teeth and say, I love you? <laughs> I think there's something more there. Something bigger there, and that's what we're going to discover this morning. We're going to look at, as Jesus prays, he shows us three specific things about unity, and that unity in him, what that does uh, as we uh, live together in unity. There's a Psalm 133, it tells us, it is good and pleasant when brothers get together or live together in harmony. It is good and pleasant. Why is that? Because... Uh, What the incarnate Son of God had once been to the Jewish people, the church is now to the world. The incarnate love and glory of God. An old English pastor said that, and I thought that encapsulates our challenge very well. That we as a unified church are the incarnate love and glory of God to the world around us. And may we be that uh, together. John chapter 17, uh, what's happening here is Jesus is together with his disciples. Uh, he is in the upper room. He has just washed their feet and had the cel- uh, celebrated the Passover together, celebrated the first communion together, and now he prays for them. He prays for them because he knows what's about to happen, that this is coming to the pinnacle, the focus point of his ministry that this is the night that he would be arrested and that he would be led off and put on trial and ultimately crucified and died and buried in a tomb. Praise God, that's not the end of the story. Three days later, he would rise again. But it is this event, this death and resurrection of Christ is what it's all about. This is the whole reason that he came. And so he is praying for unity among his disciples because they will be carrying on the mission. They will be carrying on uh, the journey and the the message of the gospel of salvation. And uh, he's praying for unity for them. And the reason he is saying that, because he so longs the world to see him and know him as Savior. He says, may they be unified so that the world may know that you have sent me. He's praying this to his Father, praying to God. May they know that the, may the, may the world know that you have sent me. This was on his, his heart. <clears throat> so we're going to ask the question and answer the question, why? Why do we need to be humbly unified? In this prayer, again, Jesus shows us three things. And the first is that when we are humbly unified, we provide a most accurate picture of God. When we're humbly unified, we provide a most accurate picture of God. As Jesus begins his prayer in verse 1, 
He says, he looked up to heaven, he spoke these things, and he says, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. He wasn't reminding God what time it was. He wasn't saying, oh yeah, something, something's going to happen. He was saying the hour has come, meaning this is why I have come. This is what it's all about. What it's about to happen, what is about to happen is why I'm here. My hour has come. If we rewind, and a good cross-reference is going back to <clears throat> the book of, or earlier in the book of John, chapter 2, verse 4. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and he is at a wedding, and they run out of wine, and Jesus' mom, Mary, comes to him and says, they've run out of wine. Do something. I know that you've got the power. And then she broke into song, you've got the power. <laughs> Just making sure you're with me, all right? She said to him, they've run out of wine. Can you, can you do something about it? And Jesus' response to her was, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come, meaning, okay, yeah, I can do something about it. And he did. He, he performed a miracle, and he, throughout the Gospels, you can see the, the accounts and um, the recording of many, many other miracles. But he said, my hour has not yet come, meaning this isn't why I came to do miracles. Yes, it shows a little bit of who I am, but now here in John 17, when he says, my hour has come, this is full reveal time. This is move that bus, and we see the spectacular glory of who Jesus is. He is praying to God, God, may you pull the blinders off of their eyes. God, may you cause everyone's eyes to be opened and see that I am who I say I am, that I am your son. Glorify me with you, with your glory, the kind of glory that we had before the foundation of the world. This is the whole reason for why Jesus had come. And so we see his his emphasis on that. Verse two, he says in his prayer, he says, since you have given me authority over all flesh, Another big, gigantic statement that Jesus makes, again, giving us a clearer and clearer picture of who he is. He has given, he has authority over all flesh. You know, that immediately smacks to my self-resiliency, doesn't it? Immediately pokes me right in how independent I am and how I have everything under control and like to have everything ordered just so to happen when I want it, what to have happen, what I want. But it's saying here, Jesus is saying and revealing that all authority, all flesh is under his authority. Does this make him some sort of bully? Some sort of divine manipulator? It is exactly the opposite. It's revealing, he's saying, you've given me authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. The hour has come. This is what it all comes down to. You've given me authority over all flesh. Why? Because I want to give eternal life to everyone that you have given me. The heart of God is to draw people to himself. The heart of Christ is to draw people to God and to give glory to God. Verses three through five, the opening paragraph of of this prayer here, Jesus continues... and says, um, 
again, that, that statement, he wants, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. What was before the world existed? How can we describe it? Exactly. Nothing. There wasn't anything there. Just God. Jesus was together with God before the world existed. And so we have two foundational truths that come from this that are important for us and in our picture of who Christ is. The first is God is eternal. God is eternal. He goes so far beyond and outside and transcendent of any definition that we can try to come up with as it relates to time in our finite minds. It's hard for us to wrestle. How do I describe and get my brain around eternal? We, we really can't. But just know that God is eternal and existed before, has always existed. He before existed before <clears throat> the foundations of the earth, before the foundations uh, of the world. The second is Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God, and this is so important because of what he would do, that he would sacrifice himself on the cross. He is fully God. You connect Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8 to this, in Isaiah 42, 8, where God is saying, I will not share my glory with another. I alone am God. There is no one else. I won't share my glory with another. And then we see here in this prayer, Jesus is saying, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is fully God. We do not need to doubt that or think that there is, or that he is only just a good dude or partially God. Not the case. It is good and pleasant to live together in unity because when we do, we give to the world this most accurate picture of who God is. When we are unified with Christ, this is who we are reflecting, and the world can see that in us, and may we continue to give uh, a clear and accurate picture uh, on how we are together as a body, as a group, uh, in our families, and unified with him. Living in unity, we also see that we are on mission with God. Jesus, in his prayer, prays for his disciples. He prays for them because what have they been doing the last three years? He has been taking them with him, investing in them, and they were an active part of the ministry, not just because he needed like a bodyguard squad or, you know, someone to carry his robe and his sandals, anything like that. No, he was discipling them, hence the name, disciples, uh, to carry on the ministry of what, he, of, of, of what Jesus was all about and what he was doing, and that is bringing glory to the Father. <clears throat> Jesus was all about that. In John, a, a chapter later, John eighteen thirty seven, when Jesus is on trial, he tells Pilate that he has come, he was born to testify to the truth. That is why he is here, to bring testimony of the truth, and that is God, to bring testimony and point people to God. Luke 19.10, Jesus says he has come to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus modeled this with his disciples. One of my favorite passages that Jesus, or where Jesus reveals a little bit of who he is and what he is here to do is Luke chapter 4.18. 
Jesus, in front of the the scribes and the Pharisees, unrolls the scroll from Isaiah, and he says, I have come to bring good news to the poor, to bring freedom to the prisoner, to bring sight to the blind, and to release the oppressed. And this is so much bigger than any sort of of good deeds type action only, that Jesus just came to, to serve in a humanitarian sense. There definitely was that. But what was this good news? What was he bringing? He is bringing and is all about bringing the good news of the gospel to the poor. Bringing the freedom of the gospel to those that are in bondage. Bringing the eye-opening truth to the blind of the gospel. And bringing the that the, the only thing that are, are the only thing that can do this is the gospel, but to release the burden and to lift the weight of, of what we are carrying and the oppression and uh, just what we feel like is grinding us down, but the gospel, bringing release to the oppressed. This is what he was on mission to do and brought his disciples along with him and is giving them to do. And you and I here this morning as members, as part, as attenders or whatever it is we are here uh, in, this, in this room, in this body, we are on mission together with him. And this is our mission to bring the glory of the gospel, to bring an accurate picture of who God is, to be on mission, which is to bring the gospel to people so that more and more people will know who God is and who he is. As we discover our unity with one another and our union with Christ, we discover a unity of mission. The Father and the Son are unified in their desire to rescue sinners from the shackles of death. And this is the reason why Jesus came. And as each church draws closer to Jesus, their unity will be displayed in a common dedication to the mission of Jesus. It is so exciting to see how we, you, really should say you, uh, join together in this mission. We make mention during the announcements on Sunday morning, hey, the Kids Point team is ready. It's not daycare. It's not babysitting that goes on there but a group of individuals that are committed to bringing the truth of the gospel, the joy, the hope of the gospel to kids. On Tuesday nights, Truth Seekers, there's a team of people that have unified and are joined together to do the exact same thing, to bring the truth of the gospel. We have an amazing student ministry team that is committed to do the same thing. They thought that they were signing up for endless pizza and laser tag, but the truth is, They are 100% committed to bringing the truth, the hope of the gospel to students. On Sunday morning, we stand up here before you, not because it's fun or because, you know, we think that this is the most important thing that we could do, but it is to bring the truth of the gospel to you, whoever is sitting in the seats. Small groups, the same thing. Small group leaders are investing in groups to bring the hope and the joy and the truth of the gospel. May we do this in every aspect of our lives, join together on mission with him. It can seem scary sometimes to say, I am on mission with God, because if I stand up for God, if I witness or if I jump into what Joe has done with no place left, if I do that, that's going to be like kind of freaky. People are going to look at me. Yes, They will. 
Absolutely. People might even say bad things about me. Well, maybe they could. People might think I'm weird and reject me and never want to talk to me again. That is a potential, right? But do not fear. And this is why. As we look at this, I love this part of the passage because four times specifically, Jesus prays for protection of his disciples who would be carrying on the mission. Four times he prays either to God, would you protect them? Or he reveals that I have been protecting them by your word while I have been with them this this whole time. As I think about being on mission for God and those hesitancies can pop up, be reassured and draw your strength from, again, we are unified with Christ. We are in union with him and with each other. What do I need to fear? Jesus Christ, God's son, God himself is praying for us for our protection. That's a pretty significant protection, I would say. Better than a bulldog, better than any sort of alarm system that we could come up with to try and give us security. The God of the universe is the one who holds you in his hand. What would I not be willing to do for him? Yeah, Kurt, but just read a little bit further and the disciples themselves, I mean, they became martyrs. They were persecuted. They had resistance and they were even to the point of death faced that kind of persecution. That's okay too because we are held secure. Our hearts, our lives are held secure in him. He says in verse 12, that Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be as one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. What can come against us and pull us away from God? Nothing. Romans has showed us throughout so many times in this this passage in this study on Romans that we are secure in him. Romans chapter 8, what can pull us away? Can, Can death, nor height, nor depth, nothing can pull us away from the love of God. We are unified in him. Stand secure in that and continue on in our mission. Missionary Jim Elliott, who was... Uh, a missionary in South America and uh, with three other men taking the gospel to uh, remote tribes and was killed on the shores of a river uh, when the, the tribes turned and, and attacked him. He is a famous missionary martyr. Great. I'd encourage you more homework. Look him up. Read more about him. <clears throat> but his, one of his famous quotes is, is this, that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'm on mission with God. We are united in him. Yeah, I might have some hesitancies, but can I challenge you to give all for him? To be willing to say, you know what? Use me, God. And if people think I'm a little weird or a wackadoo, I'm okay with that because I am secure in you. 
I am secure in you. And my greatest desire, heart's desire, is just like your heart's desire, that the world would know that he is the one, that Jesus is the one that God has sent uh, for salvation. A fun thing that we do here in the office, uh, I love being a part of this, is that there's a group of seven of us that get together every week prior to the next week's message and we sort of discuss and process through what we're sharing and we speak into each other's message and it's so incredibly valuable and helpful. This week we were doing that and they were, we were conspiring? That's probably not the right word. <laughs> we were brainstorming together um, of, of what could we use for an illustration. And someone said, we need to come up with some sort of illustration that, you know, like this great battle scene of everybody on mission and marching into battle and, you know, victory and all that was accomplished and rah, 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 rah. And the more I thought about it, you know, I'm a, I was a teenage boy in the late 80s. And so the only thing that I could come up with that sort of stroked that adrenaline thought right there was Top Gun. Anybody? Come on. Highway to the, all right, yeah, we could go on and on with, with quotes for this, but that would be a significant rabbit trail. But in this movie, there's this particular scene I want to highlight when uh, Maverick is disengaged. He has gone through the training and the rigors and the stresses of all that had been invested in him in a top gun school. And during one of his training missions, he and his, uh, his co-pilot, Goose, had to eject. And during the ejection, Goose dies. And Maverick can't quite get over this. And so he is disengaged. Every other training mission, he's hesitant to get back into the fight, to get back into the battle. And he's just sort of hanging out on the sides. And while that's okay, I can understand that for the self-preservation aspect, what was at stake? As a fighter pilot, what was, what was the, the one message, well, one of the many messages of Top Gun? Never leave your wingman, right? It was. Take my word for it, <laughs> right? Never leave your wingman. And being disengaged from the fight, you're leaving someone else completely exposed or you're not accomplishing the mission in a broader sense. <clears throat> it comes to the, the end of the movie and he makes it through flight school and Top Gun school and they're in a real world scenario, a real world situation where uh, the evil bad guys, I'm sure it was the late 80s, so I'm sure it was the Russians, right? Uh, they were a threat somewhere and so here they are in their F-14 Tomcats trying to alleviate the threat and Iceman, poor Iceman, is just getting peppered by the bad guys. And Maverick's saying, it's not good, it's no good, it's no good. He won't engage, and everyone's imploring him, engage, engage, engage. Would you engage? Finally, he does, of course, and yay, victory wins the day, and it leads to that heartwarming scene that should be a Hallmark movie of Maverick and Iceman embracing on the deck of the aircraft carrier, right? I say all that to say this, are you engaged are you engaging or just sort of skittering along on the outskirts, more, more concerned or, or the thoughts being dominated by self-preservation uh, and saying, I can't quite get in the fight? Understand this, that what is at stake is the eternal lives of, of people. 
May we be unified around the mission of Christ to bring the gospel to the world, to the world around us, that we are willing to say, you know what, I'm going to dive in, even if it means things get a little bumpy. Because what is at stake is significantly more important than the opinion that someone else might, might have of me or a label that someone may, may stick on me. Much more important than that. I want to talk and touch on three ways that we engage the world just for a challenge and encouragement. One way that we have a, uh, a way of engaging the world is we engage in isolation in the sense that we look at the world around us and we're horrified, we're stunned, we think, oh man, this place is just going downhill and I want no part of it. I want to be as far away from it as possible lest I get something icky on me. And so we get the bunker mentality of Christian and we say, I'm gonna engage the world in isolation, believing that the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be protected rather than shared. I have to protect myself from the evils of the world. Okay, again, unless something you know icky gets on me and 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 spoils me, it's not what Jesus is praying here for his disciples. He's saying, "I am leaving. Jesus is leaving to go back to be with his Father, but they will still be in the world. Be in the world." We have to watch out, though, because sometimes we engage and the pendulum swings too far the other way and we engage the world thinking that we've had some sort of miraculous inoculation, that we live as though the gospel has made me immune from any temptation or worldliness. We think that, no, I'm free in Christ. It says there's no condemnation in in Jesus Christ. Yeehaw! And we go 100 miles an hour with our hair on fire, whatever it is that we want to do. And that's too far the other way. We are to be in the world, yes, but not of the world. And so the third way I want to encourage you and challenge you with to engage the world is to engage it with, the word I have up here is insulation, but maybe the better word is incarnation, bringing Christ with us, Christ influencing and impacting the world. And that is as we live differently in the middle of an unbelieving world, both feet in it with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with other family members, the unmistakable fruit of Jesus illuminates the world around us. May we engage the world <clears throat> incarnationally with uh, what's going on around us as we are unified to God in his mission. Again, it is good and pleasing and pleasant to live together in unity because when we do, we see that we are on mission together for God. We also see something incredibly beautiful, something that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do, and that is we see that what is broken, what is fractured, or what is divided is brought back together. We see that Jesus Christ is what restores us, is what reconciles us, first of all to him, certainly, There's nothing else that can reconcile us and restore us to God, but the transformational power of the gospel can reconcile and restore even the most broken human relationship. It's the beautiful power of the gospel. Our unity is a display of God's glory. In verse 24... 
Again, we see the heart of Jesus as he's praying. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. His heart is unity. His heart is to draw people to to himself. And we get to be a part of that. This is what it's all about. The reconciliation, the restorative power uh, of of the gospel, this is why Jesus came, to combat sin, to defeat sin uh, once and for all. This is why he says, the hour, my hour, is right now. There's nothing else that can do that. May that impact us and challenge us this morning. Again, our challenge, I want to encourage you with, and maybe even be bold enough to say to poke at you with, Uh, a little bit, uh, is this. How has the gospel humbly unified me? How has the gospel humbly unified me? And the impact of the gospel is seeing that I am a sinner in need of grace. Every single one of us is in that position. There is not anyone that is exempt. May the gospel impact us with that truth. But may the gospel also bring us this hope, and that is the hope of the gospel is the knowledge that salvation comes by grace alone and faith alone through Christ alone. And it is available to every single one of us as well. Lastly, the gospel transforms me to live humbly unified to one another, to other believers. Not as a secluded group, but rather as ambassadors of God standing upon an accurate image of God, on mission for God, longing to see the world reconciled to Him. This is the mission, this is who we are as a church. LCF exists for those three things. To give an accurate image of God, to show people who He really is to encourage others, to encourage you that call themselves members of LCF to say we are on mission for God, to bring the gospel not just inside these four walls, but as you go out, to bring the gospel to every place that you go, that you may be a light for him in your neighborhood, in your workplace, everywhere. So that we may see people come to know him as their savior. Is this me? Is this you? Are you there? What is a self-check that we can do in this area of devoted discipleship? It's three things, three questions I want to ask you. And as we look at this, they're going to pop up on the screen. And you'll see the, the first initial question. And then what comes after that can be shifted around and you can mix and match and uh, sort of have fun with it that way. But the first question I want to ask you is, am I nurturing discontent? In my desire or in what we are called and encouraged to be as devoted disciples, humbly unified, am I nurturing discontent anywhere? And specifically, ask yourself the question, how about in my marriage? Nurturing discontent in my marriage? A while ago when I shared with you, when I spoke to you, I told you in a moment of transparency that I have this thing about open refrigerator doors. Don't like them. And if you want to torture me, lock me in a kitchen and just like leave the refrigerator door open. 
I might pull my hair out. And so I would find myself getting so upset about open refrigerator doors and thinking that, you know, my family, that my wife was doing this on purpose just to get back at me. I kid you not, two weeks ago, I thought I was over this. Two weeks ago, I was in the kitchen, and you know, when we moved here, I was excited that we had a refrigerator now that had an alarm on the door, so that if it was left open for a certain period of time, it would beep. And hey, even the refrigerator is with me. It doesn't like having its door open as well. Two weeks ago, I was getting water from the refrigerator door, and I'm just standing there, you know, waiting for my cup to fill up, and I'm looking at the panel, and I notice that the alarm had been turned off. People, who was out to get me? Someone intentionally turned that off. I'm not looking at you, Michelle. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. But what was funny was I felt within myself in that moment, this strange moment of humanity of like being annoyed and discontent. Like I cannot believe that like someone would actually intentionally turn the alarm off just to get you know, around that, that scenario of leaving the fridge open. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And I had to check myself. And I admit it probably took me longer than it, than it should have to check myself. But But this question of am I nurturing discontent anywhere in my marriage or any other relationship? And if I am, what do I do about it? Guys, humbly acknowledge my own shortcomings. Guess what? I don't clean the fridge very often, apparently. (laughs) That's why I love you, my dear. Second question to ask yourselves, am I rationalizing any unresolved conflict? What I mean by that is, do you have a broken relationship that you know is broken and you will not do anything about? That you absolutely refuse to say, you know what, it's broken and I'm okay with it staying broken. Or we begin to rationalize it and say, you know, it's broken and I will gladly forgive them if they would just come groveling back on hands and knees and ask for my forgiveness. Then I'd happily give it to them. There's no problem here, right? Do we rationalize any unresolved conflict? Do I do that in my neighborhood? Do I do it in my marriage? Do I do it anywhere else? And if so, what do we do about it? Take the first step toward reconciliation. And I don't say that, you know, as to, you know, encourage you to be the bigger man and be the bigger person so that you can pat yourself on the back for being a bigger person. I say that because that's what we're instructed to do in Scripture, that if while you are bringing your sacrifice, you find that there is something that is stuck or broken inside of you with another person, go and take care of that and then come back and offer your sacrifice. It's scriptural. So... Ask yourself that question. Third question is, am I content in isolation? Am I happy to be isolated? Am I happy to be on my own? Because, you know, deep down, I know that I know best anyway. And everyone else's idea, well, you know, thanks for trying, and I appreciate the effort, and, you know, you get a little blue ribbon for participation, but my idea is better anyway, and so I'm just going to keep on trucking, doing whatever it is I want, and whatever it is I have planned, and nothing about me is going to change, even if you try to speak truth at me, something that, that you notice that maybe I need to correct or check in myself. Am I content in isolation? If so, what do you do about it? One, one thing we can do is, guys, join a small group. 
join a small group, start to build a relationship with other believers who can bring encouragement and speak, speak truth uh, into our lives. All of this leads us to this morning participating together as a body in the most significant thing that we can do that, that shows our unity, and that is celebrate communion. What is it that unifies us together? As we're here in this room, is it we're unified together because of comfy chairs or a convenient service time? No. We are unified together because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. What binds us together is his sacrifice, him shedding his blood, sacrificing his body to take away our sin, to pay that penalty. Only he could do that. But as we do this in the frame of reference around being humbly unified, let's ask ourselves the question, am I humbly unified right now? And if not, of some uh, different challenges, something different than we've ever done, but hear my heart in this, and that is, I want you to participate in communion. I want nothing more than to celebrate this with every single person in the room. But a couple qualifiers. First is, are you unified with Christ our Savior? Maybe you've been sitting and thinking and processing through and hearing the gospel presented to you, but have never made that definite, definitive moment in your mind to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. I believe without a doubt I am who the Bible says I am a sinner in need of a savior, but I accept the marvelous free gift of grace by faith that Jesus Christ pays the penalty for my sins and I can live uh, with that security in him. If that's where you're at right now, make that decision right now, right here, and communion will be more meaningful to you than you've ever experienced before. The second challenge is this, is is if you find yourself in one of these situations, one of these questions that, you know what, I am nurturing discontent, I do have unresolved conflict that I will just absolutely not and have not wanted to do anything about, and you know what, I am content in my isolation. Would you be bold enough this morning to put off communion for a moment and take care of what's up there, to take care of that question? If I've nurtured discontent with my wife, right where you're sitting, deal with that. Ask for forgiveness. If there's broken relationship and maybe even broken relationship with someone across the room, this is pretty bold, but, but be bold enough to walk across the room and say, hey, I'm sorry. And then take communion. <clears throat> maybe there's a situation where uh, there's a relationship that can't be taken care of right here in the immediate, but could be taken care of with a phone call this afternoon. Would you withhold from communion, take care of that this afternoon, and then tonight at 5 o'clock, we will be having communion upstairs in room 200 for whoever wants to withhold from taking communion now and come back and celebrate it later when these have been, have been resolved. So again, hear me say, I want you to participate in communion. This is not a disqualifying thing at all. This is something that I want to walk together in that brings life and significance and meaning to participating in communion. The worship team is going to play, and we're going to respond in worship to the, the call, the challenge, the encouragement. A devoted disciple is humbly unified.
Let's worship together.